on. You're all ready? I am. Okay. <clears throat> and good morning, Gary. And good evening, Jonathan. Here in the States, it's a week before Thanksgiving. And you don't quite do that in Australia, do you? Well, actually, we don't do it at all. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, we don't have that thing to be giving thanks for that you do, because you're a different country. Um, well, I don't <laughs> think that a lot of Americans spend a lot of time thinking about what there is to be thankful for these days. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you don't think a lot, of, a lot of Americans think of Australia as a different country for a moment there. <laughs> no, well. Though I did notice you're about, you know, we're about to let you send you know, two, two and a half thousand of your troops down here to be uh, permanently stationed Marines up in the Northern how did Territory. Our president, uh, how did our president's visit go over down there? I have to say that I lived in a, in a little jet lag bubble and ignored it as much as I can, but a lot of people seem to take it pretty well. You know, he seemed, certainly seemed to be yeah, friendly enough. Well, you know, look, it's a, it's a slightly sycophantic relationship, in truth. Uh, so we're, we're prone to being, oh, my goodness, you know, sort of Barack Obama came to Australia. Aren't we lucky? Rather than kind of, well, here's our ally, and we're going to go and talk to him, talk to them about what we, do, what we do or don't need. So, you know, it, it was always going to be mostly a very positive, friendly, PR-y kind of visit, and it seems mm -hmm. to have been that kind of a thing. Um, the whole troop thing... And I know very little about it, other than they're going to permanently station the Marines in the Northern Territory. Is controversial. The Chinese hate it. We need the Chinese to like mm -hmm. us, so that makes it hard. So, you know, all that kind of thing. But, it, but it's part of our ongoing alliance, Gary, between our two great nations. Well, and not only that, but you have an economy that seems to be working, which is something that most of the rest of us envy. Well, uh, until we really annoy the uh, Chinese, uh, at, which, no, at, at which point we may not have, because they'll turn around and say, we're going to stop buying your natural resources and we'll go somewhere else. I don't really... interesting. Yeah. Uh, just to segue this somehow by sheer force of will into a topic related <laughs> to science fiction. Uh, well done. There was, no, when I was, I was thinking, I, I've, been, I've been bringing up this business about science fiction in the 50s and that sort of thing. Yeah. When I was a kid... Uh, and outside of studying geography and that sort of thing, in the science fiction world, Australia meant two things. It meant um, Bertram Chandler. Sure. And it meant on the beach. Sure. And that was about it. And it, it, it occurred, I think, on the beach, I think the uh, Stanley Kramer film, if I believe, I think they actually filmed it mostly in Australia. I'm not sure. They, they may but, have, but I mean, Neville Shute, where, where is he from, says Jonathan ignorantly. Neville Shute, I believe, was an English writer. Mm, so was Bertram Chandler. I understand that, but he was in the Australian Merchant Marine or something like that for his entire career. And wasn't he Ramsey Campbell's father-in-law, something like that? Really? It's something I, like that. I mean, I forget whether he was Ramsey Campbell's or... He was one of the British horror writers, I'm sure of it. Um... And you're checking that out as we speak. I sorry, sorry. Uh, well, when, when did you meet uh, Bert? I was at a popular culture convention. He was speaking. Um, uh, he, he was speaking in an incomprehensible accent, which I now learn uh, years later was not an Australian accent. I don't know what it was. It was a seaman's accent. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I, and I kept asking him. Uh, I, I, I was I was I was introduced to him because I was the only one there who'd ever heard of him, and they said yep. you should talk to him and he should talk to you, and and I said well I didn't I knew nothing about him. I said what do you do for a living? He said I'm a sheriff's sure, sir, and I <laughs> said well what, what, uh, yes uh, you're a you're a um, he said a sheriff's sure, sir, and I finally realized he meant shipmaster. Yeah. Uh, so it was it was a kind of Long John Silver accent that I realized <laughs> now was something that. Probably hasn't existed in anybody else I've ever met, and probably died out about 1870 everywhere else except in him. Probably, but then I mean he was born in 1912, so sort of what do you expect? You know, in somewhere in England, and and yes, he was indeed uh, Ramsay Campbell's father-in-law, uh -huh. which just goes to show it's a weirdly small world. But you need it is. There are odd connections like that. And, you know, you'll be interested, Gary, to know that I'm coming to you live through my old microphone. Your old microphone was, was found? Yes. Guess where it really? was found, Gary? Don't tell me you'd packed it. It was in the laundry, Gary. 
I emptied my suit. I emptied my suitcase of all the laundry, you know, tossed it all into the laundry basket to be cleaned later. And when Marianne went to clean it, she found it in there. Well, I can, it, it's an entirely rational thing for you to have done. What better protection for a delicate, I don't know, uh, some people who have been at, at, at conventions have seen, you still have this giant snowball microphone. Yeah, don't you? yeah, yes, I do. Yeah, the gorgeous microphone. If I were thinking about a place to protect that, I'd put all my laundry around it. It makes perfect sense. You were being very rational, and then you simply forgot that you'd been rational. <laughs> well, and there was somewhere where like, I typically put it, and I hadn't put it where I typically put it. And I think what I'd done was I'd, I'd attempted to be awfully, awfully um, efficient after that long, horrible flight back home and just take all the laundry straight out of my bag and put it straight into the laundry basket to get, get mm. washed. And it just got scooped up in that. And then it was like I'd noticed that the bag had been opened at the airport. So I figured, well, you know, it's been opened. This isn't in here. So I guess this is a rare apology to the TSA who did not take <laughs> take my my microphone at all. I mean, you know, I know they're a shifty crowd who probably would have if they'd seen it. But nonetheless, I have to. I do have to t- tender my my apologies. You know, just this once, just here on this private little podcast. I'm sure they're massively relieved. <laughs> so how's your science fiction week been, Gar? I was thinking. Um... Thanks to your graces, I'm, I started reading a, an absolutely gorgeous novel, only a third of uh, Margot Lanigan's new novel, Sea Hearts. And the part I'm reading is the part that occurs before the novella, which, okay. uh, which won the World Fantasy Award a couple of... Uh, but before I started that, I was, uh, I was thinking that I was feeling oddly disconnected from the field in, in, in a way. And then I finally realized that may have had something to do... Uh, with not having been at World Fantasy, and, and we've talked about that, and there, there, there are plenty of good reasons I had not to go. But I, it occurred to me that there's there's no other part of literature, no other field, I don't think mysteries are like this, where, where when you detach yourself from the community for a while, you feel like you have to make more of an effort to stay attached to the literature. That's I just had a sense I didn't know what was going on, and I, the reason I didn't have a sense of knowing what was going on is because I hadn't talked to a dozen people about what they're doing, what's coming out next, what have you been reading, that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I've been feeling a little bit isolated. I think that's, well, I can understand that, though I have to say, I think that's probably, in fairness, more an insider's issue for, for almost anywhere rather than a, a genre-specific issue. You know, I, I do think there's that element of, you know, if you're the, an insider, you need to keep connected, you want to keep connected, and it's very easy to sort of feel like like you've lost track of things. I mean, the thing I've been struggling with this week as I sort of emerge slowly and ineffectively from a haze of jet lag is keeping track of things, beginning to feel like I know where I am in the year because, as we've said so often before, you know, we're uh, at this combined stage as the year ends. We're reading into year uh, 2012. I've already read mm-hmm. one or two 20, 2012 books. You've read a number of 2012 books. Uh, in fact, round right about this time last year, I'm willing to bet you and I were starting to rave about the Joe Walton book. You know, yes, just, just just to give you a a benchmark kind of time. At the same time, there's this need to go back and look at 2011 and put you know rule out, you know, put a ruler onto that and have it in its frame, and that's very tempting. And also a desire to get time out of both time streams to just read. You know, it's like mm-hmm. I'm reading a bunch of things right now. Like you, I'm reading Sea Hearts by Margot Lanigan, which starts beautifully, as you say. I'm also reading um, the Jennifer Egan book that won the um, the Pulitzer. A Visit from the Goon Squad, which is excellent. And I have uh, Delia Sherman's new book, um, The Freedom Maze from Small Beer, that I'm looking at uh, f- you know, just because I want to read it before the year's, year's over. Uh, and i got this feeling that when we look at it closely, it's going to have been a hell of a year for young adult novels. And whilst I don't think there's any chance we're going to overlook Delia's book, I think it's just that in that context that I'm looking for it. And then I'm also aware of other stuff. It's like, I mean, you were saying to me, there was an Elizabeth Hand novella that came out in Steve Jones's book, A Book of Horrors, which looks terrific, actually. Mm-hmm. And I did order and buy a copy, but it arrived long after my you know, year's best deadline had closed. And so I just allow myself to think that uh, the horror editors will cover that book properly because it's mostly outside the remit of my best science fiction and fantasy anyway. And I know that Ellen Datler would love me to stay completely clear of even dark fantasy, so I'm sure she'll be pleased that I'm not going to really cover that in any depth. But it goes to show you're never completely on top of the stuff that's coming out. No, and, then, and that's why I never really 
think of myself as an insider in that sense. I mean, obviously there are you know things that we get to see before other people get to see them, but um, and, and and it does raise an issue which comes up every time I'm reading for an award. I'm reading for an award again this year. We're looking at the Locus recommended reading yep. list, uh, and that is that editors and, uh, and publishers, if they're interested in awards, and some of them are, ought to think about the wisdom of publishing a book on December 31st. <laughs> well, I mean, I had this dis discussion last year because there was something that came out on that particular day, and at the end of it, you know, they said, look, we get a sales boost for various reasons by being published right at that time, and that's just how it is, and we're, we're not as concerned as you'd think about such things, you know. So you, you can never quite tell... Uh, how you know the exact reason why a publisher has done something, but usually they have fairly solid reasons, I guess. You know. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm, yeah, they're they're obviously more concerned with with market than they are with best of the year and anthologies and yeah. sure. uh, and, and reading lists and that sort of thing. Mm. Which which gives me another question mm. uh, about uh, how books are marketed and how they're perceived in in, in terms of longevity. In other words. Have we gotten into a world now in which every book, every, every novel that comes out, let's say, because short story collections are a separate issue, is marketed for that season only? Uh, does anybody really publish novels with the feeling, with what we used to call the mid-list feeling, that this novel will build over months and, and, and do a solid job for us? Very hard for me to even pretend to be able to answer that question. My, my guess is not so much. Um, the feeling is that I mean, sort of the mid-list is either disappear, disappearing or has disappeared. You know, the mass market paperback is just about is, is going to get eaten alive by e-books and mm. will be, become its own thing. Uh, apparently, the most profitable per-unit book that they publish are the trade paperbacks. They're disappearing, and I got you know, and those seem to be areas where you know, your mid-list title kind of, if it had a chance to grow, was going to grow. So. I don't know. I don't know how, how marketing is adapting right now. It'd be really interesting to sit down with someone and talk about it. Uh, someone who's actually got knowledge of what's happening. Well, I mean, at some point we should probably talk to somebody, for example, who's uh, who's committed hugely to what we would what we used to think of as a mid list, which is which is Malcolm Edwards and and, and Galanx with this science fiction gateway project. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, because. Yeah. That argument that argues the opposite of what you said. That argues that the mid list is more available than ever. The mid-list is no longer uh, weighed down by inventory taxes and, and stocking fees and having and, and having to be in a bookstore. Well, that's true, but does, doesn't it also ask sort of uh, – that just show, shows because it's all electronic that you can do it low cost. It doesn't show that there's necessarily a market for it. Um, that's what I think we're waiting to see. I yeah, think that yeah. the, one, one of the things behind the Galanx uh, experiment, and I see it as an experiment, is to find out if that long-tail theory – Will will kick in in a way that I don't think it really has yet. Well, let me ask you a weird question as well, since you brought this up. I mean, we've not discussed this um, of late, but they launched the Golan's SF Gateway what about two months ago, mm -hmm. and the uh, latest edition of the SF Encyclopedia at the same time. It, I don't want to in any way disparage either achievement, but do you feel they've kind of dropped in a bucket somewhere? Uh, it's, it's almost like there's no reverberation from it in the community at all. I remember when the 93 version of the SF Encyclopedia came out and when the Fantasy Encyclopedia came out that uh, Clute did with John Grant. And yes. there were enormous ripples through the field about that. I remember people running around talking about it, looking at it, buying it, um, arguing oh, about I, their I, I, entries, I, I, all this kind of stuff, right? Absolutely. I bought them both in, in bookstores that are no longer there the day they came out. And then I was caught up in this off-list discussion that I don't really intend to go into in any great detail because it was mostly it was kind of confidential. But that someone said, well, you know, if you're going to look at reference works for um, uh, awards and such for 2011, surely the new version of the SF Encyclopedia would be one that you would have to um, consider, right? And you're kind of going, it didn't even occur to me. It didn't cross my mind. I'd forgotten it had happened. It, you know, like, I realized I was sort of semi-jet-lagged, but even though it's like, there's this enormous thing, uh, which arguably isn't even out because it's not really the final version of it. It's the beta or something. But even then, mm -hmm. you know, you're sitting there going, 
what happened? Is Has this thing that was supposed to only be pub- published digitally lost its impact because it was published digitally? I think there, I think there is some truth to that. I think there is some sense that uh, all this material which has been um, available hitherto only in, in one of these massive books is now online. And it's, it's got to make a distinction between itself outside of the authority of the editors. It has to make a distinction between all the sources that are on, uh, on online for this material anyway. In other words, mm-hmm. it really uh, was the only major reference book about science fiction. There were other encyclopedias. Yep. There were things called encyclopedias. Uh, Clute even did a Dorling Kindersley illustrated encyclopedia. Um, but this was, this was the one source you had. Now it's put itself in an arena where there are tens of thousands of other sources. Um, I'm sure that the material in the encyclopedia is more reliable than almost any of those sure. sources, but I'm also equally sure that that material is going to migrate to Wikipedia if it hasn't already. Well, so there's that, there's so that's that. one problem. The other problem with the book, and I have the same question you did. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, you continue, please. I, I was going to say the other problem I have is, uh, is the third edition, which which is ostensibly and by by their own account, an ongoing project. It'll be updated continuously. Yeah. Now, eventually, I believe you you subscribe for the updates or something. But effectively, it's a book which will never be finished. It will never be at a form where we can say, okay, this is the complete third edition, because the third yes. edition, it seems to me, is an ongoing process. Yes. Now, and I, can you give an award to a book which is actually in process? Well, I, I well, it's not a book. I guess is the first thing, and then oh, yes. you, and and that's a quibble, and it, I don't want to get into quibbling over definitions, but you can certainly you can turn it around and say it's a online inf- you know, reference resource, and then the fact that it's finished or not becomes irrelevant. You know, it's when you mm-hmm. think of it as a book that an edition becomes important. And I think John himself has argued, in fact, I've said on this podcast that the idea is that you know they back it up every month, and that becomes the edition, if you like. Which means there'll be like version 3.0.1, 3.0.2, that kind of stuff. But I think because, partly because they launched it as the beta text, with I think A through K are supposed to be complete, and L through Z are not complete. Mm-hmm. You also don't know how much attention to pay for it, pay to it. And also there's that thing where websites are, are unless you're out there promoting them, they're quite passive things. So you can end up not going to them, not using them. And I mean, I, I remember thinking. You know, if there was a new edition of the encyclopedia, I would be using it every single day. Yes. And yet I find myself forgetting it exists. Uh, my uh, habit, my work habit, if I want information online, is to go to Wikipedia. Uh, whether or not most people agree or not, I feel as though the, the doubt about the accuracy of Wikipedia has to some degree been set aside by the popular community, if nothing else. Um, and I'm sure, as you say, quite rightly, the information, the quality of the information on the encyclopedia will be far higher. I would completely expect that to be the case. However, whether we'll learn to stop or looking at Wikipedia or to also look at the encyclopedia, I'm not really sure. And I know they've done, and this is the thing that you can't tell as well from this from the website. The website does mm-hmm. not give you a clear idea that they've done a colossal amount of work. They have written staggering amounts of extra material to go into this version of the encyclopedia over the previous version. Mm-hmm. But it's not apparent to you, you know. Um, well, it may not be apparent to you and me because we have used the earlier version so much. And as you say, you check it every day. Uh, now it's in a, a, a much broader audience. Now now you're in a readership which includes idle curiosity. The majority of people who, uh, the vast majority of people who now have access to the encyclopedia online are probably people who never saw the print editions maybe but then if they've if they never saw the print edition and they don't have that respect for it and they don't really care so then you need to do something to make it stand out and if it's sitting here as a website in the corner somewhere then maybe that's not going to do it i mean, I, I guess i'm not thinking about this because it was you know without going into the detail again it was re- it was mentioned with respect to the locus recommended reading list and I just remember, mm-hmm. I, the reason that I've, I flagged this to you is because it's not that I d- agree or disagree on whether it should be there. It's that I was surprised it was brought up. That's the thing. I mm-hmm. had moved past it already. And that surprised me. You know, that did. That surprised me quite a bit. Um, 
and I'll be curious to see how it's received. Uh, it's the kind of thing, I mean, at one point, if they put out a print copy of the SF Encyclopedia 3rd Edition, it would have won the Hugo yeah. Award basically by default. You know, they just just write their name on it now, give it to them. And right. I'd be curious to see whether it can make the kind of um, impact that it needs to, to get attention so people realize, so that it even gets nominated, frankly. And what, what would it be nominated as? I guess Best Related Work would still yeah. include online sources and that sort of thing. I believe so. Uh, I mean, and it's, a, it's a problem which, which Clute knew about before the, the second edition of the encyclopedia came out, that with the extent of, uh, of the, the number of new entries and the expanded entries and then now sure. complete bibliographies, that a third print edition simply wouldn't be possible until you, unless you're talking about a multi-volume encyclopedia. Yeah. Uh, so, to some extent, this is the only option they have available to them. Oh, I, I agree, and I understand that. Um, I, I guess what I see is there's a challenge for the proprietors of the encyclopedia, whether it's John and Peter, or whether it be the other people working on it, Graham and their team, or whether it be the publisher, to, to start getting people talking about and using the encyclopedia uh, in the same way they were using the previous editions of it, so that we accept it as the default reference work for the field, that it's been for, for the last, well, since 1979, I think it is, when the first edition came out. I mean, in, it instantly became the, the default thing. First edition, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, even now, I mean, my second edition I use all the time, and my first edition of the uh, Fantasy Encyclopedia I use all the time. So I would hope they can find a way to keep it in front of our attention, because otherwise there's that risk that it will just simply lose currency. You know? Well, at some point, uh, I hope to see a declaration of this is, yeah, you're right, this is version 3.0. Yeah. Or something, so, so that at some point it's complete. Because certainly, if I had a sense that that there was a complete third edition that I could look at that, that feels itself to be reasonably complete, that declares itself to be a book, even if it's only online, then we should be reviewing it in Locus. Just like, uh, yes. I mean, I, I think the most time I ever spent writing a single review for Locus was for the second edition of the encyclopedia. Yeah. Um, and and how which is would a you challenging thing to review for all sorts? Well, it is. But I mean, how would you or could you how review would, this? How would you do it now? I don't. Even, I mean, I haven't even worked out how to navigate it. Truthfully. Uh, I think that's part of the problem. I think we need to learn the navigation. We need to learn uh, the links and so forth and so on. But see, and, the problem uh, there is a different thing, and it's, it's, it's a web way of thinking, and people out there may disagree with me. We don't do that with web product. The web, the web, web information either gives itself to us wholesale, or we don't bother. Mm. We don't I, would argue, I would argue that in encyclopedia, the, the way the encyclopedia um, especially was conceived in the second edition, even, even more the way the Encyclopedia of Fantasy was conceived was as a web, as a kind of network, because there were all these critical ideas, all these you know, provocative new terms that uh, mostly Clute invented, and some of them were not, some of them were borrowed from other people like Roz Caveney, some of them were uh, John Grant's terms, uh, but all of the boldface entries that would lead you to something else was, it was a terrific way to do research, because if you were interested in a writer, you could find the relationships, you could find other kinds of books by that person. And, and in a sense, the Encyclopedia of Fantasy was a book that cried out to be hyperlinked. Yes, but I don't know that websites are destinations in that way, where you go and you read in them like that. Um, that's probably true. And uh, and I think part of, part of the problem that we're all facing is people are going to have to learn how to navigate this. I've never spent any amount of time at all with the Encyclopedia Britannica online. Uh, no. It's there. Uh, and it just strikes me that uh, the reason I don't do that is because, as you, for most of the informal curiosity-seeking information, I'll go to Wikipedia. Yeah. As much as and if my students are listening to me after I gave them the lecture about how unreliable <laughs> Wikipedia is in an academic paper, uh, there's a difference between finding something out to satisfy your own curiosity and finding something out that you're going to use as documentation and as evidence. Yes. Uh, and I think the encyclopedia has that authority to it. Sure. Uh, whereas I, Wikipedia doesn't. I mean, I will. You're I will right. Yeah. We're, we're not in the habit of using uh, online sources that way. I would say, I mean, in fact, I'd say all of the 
study about how we read. And actually, I was reading a book called The Shallows that, that Guy Kay recommended to me about how reading on the internet is changing the way we think, how our brains work, and all this kind mm-hmm. of thing. And it wasn't an, it's not an alarmist book. It's just noting the fact that, you know, this is the medium and everything else. And while I've been talking to you, I've been browsing the SF Encyclopedia. And so I pulled mm-hmm. up there the 2005 entry on Sword and Sorcery that would have run in the Grant Clute Encyclopedia, I assume, which right. is written by Peter Nichols. And it goes for screens and screens, right? I'm not going to read no. screens and screens. Just not going to. Nor, I think, will most people. I think you may be right, but that depends on what you're going to the source for. Um, yes. You're not going to read screens and screens. If, if, if you want to look up something, if, you, if there's something you want to find out about uh, sword and sorcery, some specific yes. fact, you would want to be able to go to a source and find that. But, but, um, I, but I browsed the other two encyclopedias, the science fiction and fantasy books. I mean, mm-hmm. I, would, I would sit there, I'd pull out those enormously, you know, enormous volumes, put them on my lap, and I would thumb through them. Yeah. And that's how, I mean, you talk about things crying out to be hyperlinked, right? Uh, right. If you don't read hypertext that way, the, the linking doesn't matter. That's true. Uh, and, and to some extent, you have to be a, um, an inveterate habitual browser, like you apparently are leafing through it. I mean, what I would find myself doing with the Encyclopedia of Fantasy was coming across a strange term. And I'd be looking up an author, and there would be an interesting concept, and I'd look up that concept, and pretty soon, uh, after a half hour of wallowing, I'd forgotten what I was looking up in the first place. Um, yeah. And I don't know that uh, I don't know that people have that kind of leisurely approach to online sources. I don't know. I mean, it's... Yeah. it's, it's I'll it's, also tell I you... Mo- yeah. I, I don't know what the general experience yeah. is of serious, complete, vetted reference books as they appear online. I'll tell you what, what the other thing that's happened to me with this already, and it probably explains why I'm having some issue with it right now. And I'm, I really, I'm concerned as we talk that people will think this is supposed to be a hatchet job on the encyclopedia. And it's anything but. Um, I love the encyclopedia. I respect the people who are involved. And it's really about how we look online. But I mean, what I found already with the encyclopedia is I've had a couple of projects where I'm working on story notes and everything for, you know, for people. Mm-hmm. And because the encyclopedia is chronologically uneven, yeah, because it's not just A to yeah. K have been, it's like some stuff has been updated, some stuff hasn't, it makes it feel too unreliable to use. So I just go somewhere else. Well, by the same token, I can tell you that uh, some of the research I've been doing um, with 50 science fiction, with, encyclo- with Wikipedia, I would come across something just because of instinct or because of some vague memory that that didn't sound right, and I would yeah, have to sure. check that against some other source. I mean, and I, there, there are still a lot of errors and incompleteness in that as well. So. Oh, absolutely, undeniably. But, but the funny thing as well is we expect, well, I expect, and I assume you expect, that Wikipedia is not a thoroughly reliable source, and so you do extra things. Even then, though, what I do expect and what I usually find is that Wikipedia is consistently updated. So at least it's, it has a similar chronological date. The fact that you know I can look at one entry on the encyclopedia and it's 2005, one mm-hmm. and it's 1995, and one and it's two, October 2011, gets very gets somewhat disorienting. You know, so so their C.J. Cherry entry is an October 14, 2011 entry, but their mm-hmm. space opera entry, which of course is you know cross related and everything else is um, a, I assume, a 1995 or 1997 entry from the look of it. So, uh-huh. And yet they're interrelated, and you're kind of going, oh, okay, well, that's kind of a little frustrating. So, yeah, I don't it know. Is. I mean, I, 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 defense, it's a challenge defense, for them. That's, yeah. that's why it's called a beta version. At some point, there will be the third edition, at which point that complete text, which may appear sometime in 2012, will be complete and then will be updated. Yeah. But uh, I think I think you're right in saying that there should be a eventually there will be a base date for everything that everything in the encyclopedia will be updated as of let's say 2012 or 2013 yeah. and then if you check in for updates every year you can do that yeah, um, yeah. it's it's not I don't think it's humanly possible to update an encyclopedia I, I don't know how many million words they have now three million I mean it, it, million. It, it, I, I go back to what I said at the beginning a staggering achievement really on behalf yeah, of everybody's written for it. So anyway, and, 
Anyway, yeah. Enough of my hatchet uh, job on the inside. They're going to hate me now, Gary. They'll hate it's me. A, uh, well, uh, it's, it's a concern which I'm sure you're not the only one that has. Uh, well, because it well, does... It, it, it does... They are asking people who use the web, usually in informal... Uh, I, I'd be curious to find out about this. Let's find out if, if Bertram Chandler is really Ramsey Campbell's father-in-law. That kind of thing is great. You look it up online very quickly. Uh, the encyclopedia as a reference work is, is two things. It's, it's a critical work because there's a lot of critical opinion in it, which some people don't think should be there, but I think it should. And it's an almost definitive uh, bibliographical source. It's not a very definitive biographical source. There's not yeah. a lot of biographical yeah. information in it. Yeah. But at, at some point, it will reach a, com a level of completeness, at which point uh, you'll just have to look for the uh, updates year by year, I suppose. Yeah. I don't know if it's possible to update three million words every year in no, every entry. Not. Well, uh, I, no, I don't think it is. But then that's, I guess, the, the, the challenge that sort of is sort of sitting between them once. this The advantage of having done a print edition, which was unfeasible for all sorts of reasons, is at least mm. it would have carried its own, we draw a line under this date for it, you know. I think that's true. But um, I think also, you know, you're, you're actively involved in the ongoing field. And I'm both that and involved in, in academic work. And the huge, I don't know, I don't know if I'd say this or not, but a huge number of the entries, if not the majority, about authors and works have the advantage, the great, the great advantage for all reference book writers is that authors die. <laughs> oh, that's cold. It's cold, but that's... it makes it a lot easier to update the entries. Ah. <laughs> uh... Well, let, let's move on from actually what, what should really be a discussion of don't forget the encyclopedia happened or the gateways there and mm -hmm. that think about how you're using the web. I'd be curious to know how, how our listeners are using the encyclopedia and by all means I would encourage them to go to you know, sf-encyclopedia.com and actually mm -hmm. sort of work through the, through it a little bit and sort of look at some of the stuff. Some of it's not there, I mean, uh, but bit by bit it's all coming out. And hopefully they, you know, they'd be able to give us some feedback, and maybe that will prove worthwhile. Um, and I suspect that it does deserve to be shortlisted at year's end for everything, and just uh, does deserve to be considered for awards. I think I hope it does. Uh, it, it certainly needs to have that kind of attention uh, paid to it. But yeah, that's anyway. It. Can I tell you that I read I read an awesome book this week? Oh, good. And not a moderately awesome book, but a spectacularly awesome book. And it was? I will tell you, and I'll, I'll give you the background first. I don't get enough time to read all of the young adult work that I would like to read. Mm -hmm. And I'm, in fact, actively waiting to see recommendations from Gwenda Bond. And if you're listening, Gwenda Bond, I can't wait to see your Locus recommended reading recommendation. I'm very interested. But one of the books that, that, that's, that's around is um, the new book by Patrick Ness. And I don't know if you've seen it. It's a book called A Monster Calls. That's, no. It's illustrated by Jim Kay. It's uh, based on a story by, or a story idea uh, by Siobhan Dowd, a young adult writer who died a couple of years ago uh, from cancer. Hmm. Uh, yeah, and, and I have to say right away, that there is the kind of Frankenstein's monster fix-up that never seems to really work very well. You know, you write a series, you know, a, a book that I was going to finish or that kind of thing. But yeah. what's happened is, first of all, Ness has taken the idea, written his own book, and it's just stunningly beautiful. It's about this teenage boy whose mother is dying of cancer. It's set in the UK. And he's visited by basically what's an incarnation of the green man, appearing as this large monster made out of a yew tree, who comes to, really? him, at, yeah, who comes to him at night and says, I will come to you and I will tell you three stories. And after that, you will tell me your story or you will die. And the story is simple, and it's elegant, and the prose is wonderful. The uh, book is terrific. And the artwork by Jim Kay is just gorgeous. Suits the book really well. Dark, uh, chiaroscuro kind of artwork. Lovely. So who published this? That's a very good question. I will answer it for you in just a second. Uh, Walker did. And it's out in the UK and the US and Australia. And a very handsome... Okay, that was my question. We have to clarify with this... Yeah. International Dateline podcast, sure. which books were available when and where. Yeah, it came out about April or May in all three countries, all three territories. Mm -hmm. 
So it, it is readily available and it's up for all kinds of mainstream awards. Uh, but Ness is someone who we're aware of, obviously, for his Chaos Walking trilogy, mm-hmm. which received Locus recommendations and everything else. And this book, in my opinion, belongs on the recommended reading list. It would be one of my top 10 or 15 books of the year, certainly. Um, and I do, I recommend it on hesitatingly. And also importantly, and this is something else that's important about it, and I don't want to move on too much from it itself if you've got anything else to talk about it, but it mm-hmm. highlights a particular issue with the way you read and I read. What it does is it shows that there's always a spectacular book just out of the corner of your eye that you don't have time to read. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think that when we make these prognostications at year's end about the quality of the year we've, we see, it's never a great picture because, and likely the year is better than we believe because there are these books just to the left and right of us. It's like, I don't know that you'll get the time to read A Monster Calls, even though it really, really is worthwhile. Everything I hear about Delia Sherman's book, The Freedom Maze, suggests to me that it's a spectacularly good book. I am going to read it. I don't know, know whether you'll have time to, you know, and so on and so forth as we go through the year. And now I you know, begin to find myself sort of wrong-footed about 2012 already because you've read more of 2012 than I have and I need to catch up and da-da-da-da. So, yeah, it's like... Yeah, it, it's an issue. And I think every one of us who writes these year-in-review essays for Locus, and I'm not the only one, uh, begins by saying, well, I have to. I didn't read everything. There's stuff I've heard about that must be really great. And if, if anybody wonders why years ago Charles Brown started the tradition of having everybody write an essay, it was out of recognition that not everybody can read the same stuff. Yeah. But the issue that you raise, it strikes me as being more interesting when we have uh, what, as you say, appears to be a really strong year in YA. We have what appears to be a strong year coming up in YA. Um, and this novel, which, if it shows up on the recommended reading list, it's going to show up as a YA book. You're telling me it's a terrific fantasy story. It is. It's a great story. Um, the Margot Lanigan novel is being published as YA. I don't know about the States, but certainly it is in in, in the UK and Australia. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, do we put that on the YA list? Do we put it on the YA list with an asterisk that says Grown Ups 2? Um, <laughs> are, are we consigning some really first-rate fan? Would we have put the Chronicles of Narnia on the YA list so that nobody but kids would have read it? Probably not, but I guess what I'd say to that, and I think you can anticipate it, is that at least for our readership, I think they've already made that ad- adaptation. The listeners of this podcast, I would expect, the readers of Locus, I would expect, would be completely all over um, the whole idea of uh, why a young adult children's fiction being worth reading and being of mm. interest to a broader audience. So I don't think that's the issue. It's when you move beyond that that group to a slightly broader part of the community and you turn around to someone who's maybe reading adult fantasy and it's a part of their um their reading diet but not the major part of it and they exclude young adult and children's fiction but even then i mean i wonder as well whether the whole harry potter phenomenon which spawned the young adult industry to some degree also knocked down that particular barrier i hope that it did i mean because there are writers uh uh Francis Harding is one who comes to mind, who mm. our friend Farrah Mendelssohn called to my attention. Terrific writer. I don't know if any of uh, Harding's stuff has been published other than as YA. No, that's because it all is YA. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yet that's clearly a major contemporary fantasy writer. She is. She, she, she is, the, you know, sort of the heir to Joan Aiken and a lesser extent Diana Wynne-Jones for her generation. Mm-hmm. She, she has become a remarkably great Fan, you know, fantasy writer who works in the young adult field, um, and I'm not surprised to see her newest book, uh, what is it, uh, Twilight Robbery, up for all sorts of major awards. Yeah. And I have to say, sort of, just kind of, you know, tangentially, she's also written a spectacularly good story for me for Under My Hat. So, ha ha ha. Which is also okay, a YA anthology. Am I correct? It is, and I mean, one of the discussions I've had with my editor at uh, Random House about it is that. You know, how do we make sure that connects to a slightly more adult audience? Because the key about young adult, and this is something which uh, Garth Nix has put to me in, in, in conversation a few times, is it's not about being for kids. It's about being accessible to kids. So it's, Absolutely. So it's something, if you like, it reaches down. It's like it's supposed to be from about, depending on who you listen to, 13 or 14 and up. So young, young adult isn't 13 or 14 to 18. It's 13 or 14 on. 
That's mm-hmm. the thing. So it should be that we're considering it and looking at it and thinking about it. Well, it occurs to me that when you when you categorize uh, books by age, which is uh, you know once once you're talking about people over the ages of seven years old, I'm, I always am curious about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a category called young adult. If we had a category called adult fiction, people would be expecting what? Porn. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, come on! So, what, so, yeah. Tell me you don't stop to explain carefully what the World Fantasy Convention is. Oh, well, that happens every time. And yeah, you go into the real world, <laughs> and you come back from the World Fantasy Convention, and you're showing pictures of people dressed in what, to an outsider, looks like fetish gear. Um, <laughs> and you're telling them you've got an award, and then you show them this award of what appears to be a misshapen ghoul. Uh, yeah, it's very difficult to, 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 to... I think part of the reason that uh, that... Science fiction and fantasy have embraced young adult, and young adult has embraced science fiction and fantasy. Is because both of those fields um, risk exclusion; they risk being excluded. Uh, and and still, in the um, New York Times bestseller list, they're very careful to segregate these different things. Uh, yes. They even segregate young adult into series versus chapter books versus picture books versus and so forth and so on. But correct me on the history of this. Wasn't the whole thing about creating a young adult list really just to segregate Harry Potter because they were getting they didn't want it to be swamping uh, other works on the adult list? I don't know if Harry Potter started that or not. I think Harry Potter certainly created the category of what they call series books. Yeah, okay. Uh, to distinguish that from from what they call chapter books. Uh, but but yeah, at one point uh, in the distant past, uh, children's literature didn't even have a listing, and then it became children's literature, and then it became. I've had long conversations with um, with Jane Yolen, who's been in the field long enough to watch Ooh. all these changes from what they one point called junior fiction, and then uh, young adult fiction, and then teen fiction, and middle school fiction, and all these categories, uh, you know, exist in the in, in the marketing sense, I guess, because you have to sell. Because a big chunk of this has to do with library sales and which libraries do you sell them to? Do you sell them to high school libraries or middle school libraries? Or but from the point of view of the readers and feel like ours, I don't think those distinctions make a lot of difference. Yeah. I mean, there are people, uh, one of my favorite writers for years now has been Daniel Pinkwater, and yeah. a lot of his most amusing books are written for like seven year olds. Yeah. Oh, okay. They're, they're, they're what they call picture books, but yeah. they're very, very funny. Absolutely. Can I just say, whilst I'm talking to you, obviously I'm only paying half attention to you because, hey, um, flicking around, and on Twitter, what do I see? A photo, Gary. A photo of a great... This this tells you about how hooked into things we are or are not. I am now live commenting on a Twitter feed. Um, I'm seeing a great big stack of copies of galleys of the new Paolo Bacigalupi novel. Really? Probably about 50 or 60 copies sitting on a table with a sign saying, free, take one. This is uh, the sequel to Shipbreaker. The Drowned Cities. Yeah. I'm going like, we need one of these. How, how can we not have one of these, Gary? We're locusts. They're giving them away free to tw- Twitter people? Yes. Those nice little, well, not to Twitter people. I mean, these are the nice That's people. completely an unexpected phone call on my other phone. Which we- <laughs> Do you want to stop? Yeah, I don't know why we don't have that. I don't. They'll stop ringing. I need to contact. But yeah, we should have that. I don't know why we don't have that. Paolo, send us one now. <laughs> Paolo doesn't listen to our podcast, Gary. We're not cool enough for him. Free copies of the new one. Wow. There you go. Guess, oh, by the way, Here's should, another uh, question. Yes, please okay. continue. Yeah. Oh. I had another question. I know that um, changing topics again to, yeah. to get something. Um, the I know you've been working on a lot of Best of, um, mm-hmm, or sure. the uh, the best of Peter Beagle. Uh, you've been doing this. We're supposed to be doing one together. Yep. Uh, there seems to be a lot of this coming out in the last couple of years. And one of the questions I had was, who deserves a best of? What's the difference between a best of, the collected stories of? What's the difference between the collected stories of and the complete stories of? You know where I'm going with this? I, I, well, I do. Okay, let me give you. I mean, I, I have my own idiosyncratic answers to some of these questions, yeah? Uh-huh. And I realize they're idiosyncratic. It's like I get annoyed about people who talk about um, collections and anthologies because I choose to define a collection as a single author book and I choose to define a anthology solely as a multiple uh, author oh, yes. book. 
Now that that's that's really just the definition of arrows. It's by not doesn't mean any broader definition at all. So now, first of all, the difference between a best of, a collected, and a complete. And I've got. You're talking about single author collections here. Yeah, I know. Okay. And I'm gonna, I guess what I'm going to say is that it's all fairly obvious, but I'm going to argue about one part of it for a start, just definitionally. A best of, obviously, is, is fairly clear. It's where one uh, person get or well, there's a decision is made about a, a a subset of an author's works that are, for some reason, the best of them. And yes, there's a lot of them coming out, and I could put forward a theory as to why in a moment if you want me to. Um, a complete, sorry, a collected stories actually, and this is this is splitting hairs, but I'm going to allow for it. A collected stories is where you bring a whole a whole bunch of stories together, but they're not necessarily all of them. And it's taken me a little mm. bit of while to re reluctantly expect accept this because, really, to my mind, it should be you know sort of all of them but nonetheless collected and even selected see best of and selected and collected all interrelate yeah selected mm. stories are just a subset but they're not necessarily the best collected turns out to be a subset and complete should be everything this is why i argue horribly with that the complete jg ballard book that came out which is a great book and anybody out there who doesn't have it and who wants to be interested in science fiction should go run away right now and buy one if they can find one but it's not complete even though it says it is. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a few things that have been omitted for various reasons, and there are a couple other examples out there. A collected does not have to be complete, you know, but I think a complete really should. I think it's, as a matter of honesty, it should be. You know, I mean, that's why uh, the book which prompted this discussion is a book that uh, Subterranean Press are going to publish sometime next year that I've had a small amount to do with, but not a great deal. Um, mm. I think, now, when's it going to come out? Maybe... In fact, Bill hasn't told me. It's like mid-year sometime, I guess. They're going to publish a book called... I'm just trying to see if I've got the title for it here. Uh, basically, they're publishing uh, the complete... Well, the collected short fiction of Jonathan Carroll, which is a book I'm really excited about. Uh, I would be too. Uh, Carroll's best known for his novels, but he's probably written about 40, short, 40 or so short stories. Uh, a bunch of them, the first group of his short stories were collected in a book called The Panic Hand, in fact, originally published in Germany, I think, as Der Panischer Hunt or something like that. And terrific book, really, really, really worth uh, worth looking for, but out of print, as it turns out. Uh, mm. since, since that book came back out in the late 80s or early 90s, Carol has written another group of short fiction, basically a whole book's worth, um, which has not yet found a home so it's going to be become the second portion of this book so what you get is a 34 story book called the woman who married a cloud the collected stories of jonathan carroll now it's not all of his stories you know if you go back and you you read uh his biography you will find out that there are several um play you know, several stories which were placed in mainstream outlets and everything that, that aren't included uh, for whatever reason, but it's the bulk of his stories for short fiction, and you know, not not a complete. I mean, not and you couldn't call it a complete yet anyway. I mean, not uh, because Carol's still very much alive and very healthy and writing. Uh, his short fiction appears in odd places, often on his website, uh, in places like conjunctions and so on. Uh, but is always a very very high standard. So you know, it, it's 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 a I'm, I'm rambling now. It, it, it's a worthwhile book that I think will be... Well, people yeah, collected to me does not mean complete. Collected, I, I don't expect to see everything in Collected. Um, I expect to see everything that somebody, usually, hopefully, the author, feels is worth preserving. In other words, it's complete except for things that we don't want to put in it. Yeah. Um, the, 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 what started me thinking about this were a couple of uh, books that came out last year, both of which we've talked about, one of which I thought was a very good idea, and one of which I thought was a very bad idea. Yep. Uh, the, the very good idea was uh, The Two Worlds and In Between, the two, first of two volumes of Caitlin Kernan. Yes. Not only because it's a terrific book, and here's somebody who's a very active writer, but it's somebody who I'd always read short stories by her and thought they were good, and I'd read her novels, and I... I thought of her as a novelist. I didn't. I had no idea there were that many, that variety of stories. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, that makes you look at the author in a completely different way. And it's two volumes is a lot, but it's not too much. And the second volume, well, we haven't seen the second volume. No, and it, it's a few years away. I would think you'll find. Yeah. Okay. But nevertheless, that's an important way of 
uh, allowing us, inviting us to more or less reinterpret an author's career in light of uh, a lot more fiction than we get exposed to in the novels. That, so that's a good idea. That, that strikes me as being a, putting a body of work out there that needs to be out there. The bad idea uh, was not last year, but, but what I think in general was a bad idea was the way the complete stories of Theodore Sturgeon have been handled. Yeah. Uh, they're gorgeous editions. I have, I think, all of them. Uh, by the time we get to the last uh, half dozen volumes, you're getting terrific stories. But the problem with that is that you're doing essentially a chronological compilation of a major writer who did hundreds and hundreds of stories. Yeah, yeah. Uh, many of them not very interesting. Many of the not very interesting ones being in the early uh, two or three volumes. Sure. Um, which means that from a collector's point of view, this is wonderful to have. From a library's point of view, it's desirable to have, but they may not spend the budget on it. From a reader's point of view who doesn't know much about Sturgeon, you have no idea where to go. True. Uh, you, uh, the, the, the Vintage uh, came out with a, I think, selected short story of Theodore Sturgeon about 10 years ago, which seems to me a much better way to get to know the author. Um, but, but, but complete stories, from the, in the academic world, complete stories uh, with that kind of intense editing and it's they're beautifully done i have yeah. nothing to do with the the, the 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 notes are terrific uh i find them fascinating but in the academic world that's the sort of thing that's done to nathaniel hawthorne or Catherine mansfield uh people who are canonical who have worked their way into university libraries and most of our genre writers have not done that yet well no which means books become directed simply to collector's market well that's true i mean uh, the the sturgeon project is a an odd one in the sense they you know they chose to publish a book a year. I think the impact of it would have been greatly changed had they published the entire set at once. I mean, I understand why they didn't, but I think oh, that's not a, yeah, it wouldn't have been possible. Well, no, I mean you say that, but that's it's happened in the past. I mean, they did a five-volume collected stories of Philip K. Dick at once. They did a seven-story collected stories of Robert Sheckley at one you know all at once at one point. Well, that's right, they did. They yeah. Right. Okay. So, so I mean, I mean, admittedly, it's a thirteen-volume set, and that's insane. But it's it's doable if mad. Um, the thing about a collected stories of anybody like you know, mm. who's as prolific as um, as Sturgeon was, is that it's largely an archival exercise. It's not for a, even an interested yes. reader. It's for people who've got archival reasons to want it to happen. And it, I mean, your extreme fan of the author will pick it up as well. And there are any number of examples we could give up where you know, devoted readers will go that mile. I mean, I bought all 13 volumes just as you did. Uh, there are people who bought the 44-volume complete Jack Vance because they're hardcore Jack Vance fans. So that, that, mm -hmm. that, that's only a small thing. It doesn't talk about the function of them. I mean, a collected stories, a multi-volume collected stories set, is an archival thing. Just as, in fact, the it'll probably be ten volumes or eight volumes. The collected stories of Robert Silverberg that Subterranean are doing at the moment, one you know, one book at a time. Uh -huh. Those are largely archival, right? As good as they are, and they're terrific. Um, and half has been doing, I think, Edmund Hamilton. Uh, but, Pretty but, much the same way. But they're also, I mean, Subterranean is also revisiting the best of Robert Silverberg. They're going to take, they're, apparently it's not quite Phases of the Moon, which, which Subterranean themselves did just a few years ago. Uh, it's an expanded, changed book that will come out as the best of Silverberg. So they see there's a market there for a best of Silverberg and for collected stories of Silverberg, right? And it is because there's the Yes. There's actually three levels of market, if you like, though you can't generally access them and uh it, and someone talked to me about doing this just earlier in the year and that is there's the casual reader you need to attract okay for, to someone who's worthwhile and done important work and a big best of actually is probably too much of a commitment for them some there's someone's talked about doing a like a four-story ebook sampler or something and i can see the wisdom of that then you have a dedicated reader of the field who's not a dedicated fan of that author yet and the best of kind of thing that we're seeing done gets you to that yeah. The collected stories, archival. Now, as to who should get them, uh, it comes down to all kinds of weird things. I mean, in some, I mean, like, say, doing a collected stories, a complete stories of, say, Kate Kiernan, I think would be ridiculous. And my guess is Kate Kiernan would think that it would be ridiculous. Um, she's prolific. Um, she's high standard. She's varied. Mm. But way too early in her career to do that kind of thing. The best of volume does what it should do, which is shine a different light on a really important body of work. 
I wouldn't disagree with that. And I, 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 to add to your what you're saying, the complete stories. I don't think the complete stories of Robert Silverberg is anything that, that Bob would even countenance. If you start talking about all the pseudonymous stories where he wrote whole issues of super science fiction, special monster issues under various pseudonyms, uh, of course he doesn't necessarily want uh, that representing his his best work. Uh, my concern, and 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 don't get me wrong, I am absolutely delighted to have the Sturgeon collection. He was one of, he's always been one of my favorite writers. Mm -hmm. I'm one of the people that that book is targeted toward. I don't think there are thousands of me out there. And and the problem I have, if, if somebody is visiting my house and they see 10 volumes of, of Ted Sturgeon on the bookcase, and they say, well, which one should I start with? I can't give them an answer. Because no. none of them are good ones to start with. Well, well no. And, and, I mean, it's, well, it's like, uh, think about it. Let's say the question was anybody who is a prolific writer of short stories. You know, let's say it was Harlan Ellison. You're going to say, mm. please start with Deathbird stories. Don't start with the 20-volume collected stories of Harlan Ellison. If it's mm. Ted Sturgeon, honestly, it's probably something like Not Without Sorcery. Please start there. Don't start. Uh, we've, had, we've been working on R.A. Lafferty, right? Man's written yes. many, many short stories, right? Probably a couple hundred. So do you want the theoretical, and there are hardcore readers who are desperate for it, theoretical complete stories of uh, Lafferty? Do you want a... 400-page best-of, which maybe you would, or do you want a copy of 900 Grandmothers, which is his greatest collection? Probably either of the latter, possibly just 900 Grandmothers, mm -hmm. to give you that taste, give you the variety. Um, same with Avram Davidson, same with Peter Beagle. You know, there's just a... Yeah, it makes sense to have something bite-sized and consume, you know, that you can do. Now, sometimes what a best-of will do is it will give you that. I mean, let's take a career that I've given a little bit of thought to, uh, Stephen Baxter. Now, Steve Baxter's been mm -hmm. writing... Uh, professionally since, what, the early 1980s, maybe even the late 1970s. He's vastly prolific, quite a variety of work. My, if he's written less than 150, 200 short stories, I'd be quite taken aback. There is, as, as there is for any writer of that uh, degree of, you know, who's as prolific as that, who's, for as long as that, a real variety of subject, a real variety of quality. Mm -hmm. A best of would, would synopsize down that author to a bite-sized, understandable kind of a thing. A best-of makes a lot of sense for Steve Baxter. Just as when Jeff, and, Jeff Vandermeer and Anne Vandermeer and I forget the other chap's name and I apologize for it, undertook the best of Michael Moorcock, a near impossible task in my opinion. That's, yeah. But... No, the, the, uh, so, so one of the questions I have just as, as, as an anthologist and somebody who works with publishers, um, how do you tell when somebody is ready for a best-of? How do you tell when... When it's time to do, let's say the best of Stephen R. Donaldson was something else that Subterranean has done. Um, somebody, again, who's not known for his short fiction, but has written a lot of it. Um, and it's a bit different from his novels. Um, there are people, there clearly it seems to me people like Tim Powers who you don't need a best of because they're two slim volumes and you pretty much got yeah. the complete short stories. So you're putting me on the spot um, here because I'm a friend but, of Bill's, but, but uh, the, the Donaldson one, I'm not sure I see the, the rationale behind completely since there are only two collections, Daughter of Regals and, oh, the second collection, the name of which escapes me. Mirror of Dreams. No, Mirror of Dreams Mir is a Mirror novel. Mirror of Dreams, wasn't it? No, no, no. That's a novel. But uh, but it's a novel. Uh, am I thinking of? Reeve the Just and Other Stories is the book. And we should remember it because it won the World Fantasy yes, Best right, Collection. Right. So you've got Daughter of Regals, Reeve the Just, neither of which is a long book. Uh, but between them, collect all his short fiction. So really, the best of is just a subset of those two books. So I suspect, I mean, I could work out the reasoning behind it, but it's not a literary rationale. Now, take right. by comparison another example that I've been thinking about. Um, I've been considering doing, a, or seeing if someone would be willing to do a best of Kate Wilhelm. Now, mm -hmm. Kate, Kate Wilhelm is a great subject for a best of because she has a long, distinguished career. She's written some remarkable work and a remarkable variety of work, and it's perhaps not being paid attention to as much uh, um, as it could do. Yeah? So... Mm -hmm. I agree. And then those are the kind of things. It's like, is there a variety of work? What volume of work is there? Uh, how available is existing work? It's like one of the ones that would come up to me would be, say, would you do a best of Jeffrey Ford? Jeffrey Ford certainly yeah. has the quality of work. He has the range of work. However... He's got three or four, three collections now with the fourth one due out next year, right? That will be almost all of his available body of work in print and accessible 
and all that. So I'm not sure there's a great case to make for it yet. Because you could turn around to someone and say, look, go read the Fantasy Writer's Assistant. If you like that book, mm-hmm. you're going to like the others, and you're all good. Uh, I wouldn't do a best of Andy Duncan just yet. He's got a second collection due out from PS uh, oh. in uh, March or April next year, which will form, you know, along with uh, Balutha Hatchie, his complete um, coll- complete works, really. There might be one or two things. Well, that's, 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 exactly. Oh, yeah. That's what I about Tim Powers. If you've yes. got essentially complete short fiction in print or readily available, yeah. you probably don't need something like that. And so, I mean, it's also why you get an argument against, say, an Al Reynolds. You know, there's, there's, there's enough work. He, yeah, all his collections are in print. He's written quite a bit of short fiction, but it's all available and everything else. Not a great case for it. So it's where I think you know, access to the work is disappearing. There's a significant body of work, a significant variety of work. Norman Spinrad is probably a good example of someone who might do with a best of about now mm-hmm. to re-highlight the quality of work. Because that's it. It's kind of also shining a light back on a on a, a body of work. I think that's was a great part of the... Um, Avram Davidson Treasury, you know, was to shine that light back on it, and that led to several other books coming into print and to basically stabilizing his relationship. So you know, that's eh. well, that's, that's, that's essentially what I mean. Is one of the functions of doing a best of is, and, and when you mention somebody like Kate Willem, I don't know if um, her, I don't know which of her novels are in print, or can you still get Where Late the Sweet Birds Sang? I mean, it's where still. La- where Late the B- Sweet Birds Sang is a book which remains constant, consistently in print and is in, in, in print, certainly through the SF Masterworks at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah, certainly. It's the other books. It's when you realize there are any number of science fiction and or mystery books which have come out over the years which are not readily or consistently available. Uh, and she's been both a successful science fiction writer and quite a successful mi- mystery writer, as, and as well as a very good short story writer. And there's a mm-hmm. smattering of short story collections, but she's actually in a great volume of short or short fiction, uh, and continues to. I think she probably had three stories out this year uh, in FNSF, two or three. So you know, there's there's a lot of work happening around uh, Kate Wilhelm, but it it feels like there needs to be a statement made to refresh people's opinion about her, and that's what a best of would do. I agree with that, and I think that's a function of it. And uh, we've talked about writers. Um, and we're, we're getting back into the area of women writers, but the, the best of Joanna Russ is certainly something which we, we have not figured out why it's not there. Uh, wow. Writers who, well, the, 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 fortunately, Carol Imsfuller did have a, uh, the first volume of Collected Stories out last year. Yes. I know Kip Reed. Uh, people, who's gen- people whose careers go back close to 50 years now. Yeah. Um, and, and Kate Willem is one of those. Uh, uh, certainly Carol Imsfuller is. Certainly Kip Reed is. Uh, all of these people, I think, need to be looked at through the lens that a best of would enable us to look at them yes, through. Yeah. Does that even sound grammatical? No, well, I don't know. But but hey, oh, we've been going for an hour enough. and we're at the rambling point, yeah. so it's all right. I mean, and I don't know who else. I mean, like if you were to say to me who else needs one, you know, there are people. I think Baxter would be served. I think uh, Wilhelm would be served. I'm supposed to be working on a Keith Roberts one over the coming year. I think he would be well served by one. Uh, it, it's somewhere where you can. Shine a light on a bibliography without bringing it all back into print, basically. Uh, and then I, and I would encourage people to search these books out and to, to pick them up. Quite often they disappear very quickly. I mean, I think, and I hope it'll be this, this will be corrected, and I don't know it, but I hope it will be. Uh, one of the most interesting things this year is that the Caitlin Kiernan book that you're talking about that's come out from Subterranean, yes. which uh, will be on our, our best of the year and is one of the best collections of the year, is out of the print and gone. You can't get a copy. If you don't have one, you won't get one. This is one of the problems that, uh, well, frankly, that you run into with small press, small volume printings. Yeah. Um, one of the books, uh, I, mean, the, I think one of the books that I was asked to do this, this well, I, I did this past year, was a, a collection of Philip Jose Farmer stories. And I think since it's been out for close, for, for most of a year now, and I think I said this in the introduction, basically I was asked to do stories that were not already in the best of Philip Jose Farmer, which was a very good collection. Um also from Subterranean, and and yet that book was no longer available by the time I did mine. Yes, and in fact, there's no way to get that book now unless you pay a no great deal of money on the collector's market. And I'll tell you just personally, I made a mistake. I was sent a galley of that book, and I meant to get around to buying a final, and I didn't. I don't have one. I you know, It cost a couple of hundred dollars to buy one. Mm-hmm. So... When you see these things, grab them. I, I, I hope there's, you know, I think there's a chance that um, Subterranean will 
reprint the Kiernan as a trade paperback. And if that were to happen, that would be a wonderful thing. I don't know it to be happened. It's not been presaged to me, but I would just, you know, I would hope that would happen because it's a book that should be available. So, you know. Anyway, Gary, anyway, guess what? Stop. We're Let out me... of time again. <laughs> you see, this is what, why I actually run a, a timer so that my children don't come in and kick me in the shins and say, Dad, where were you all morning? Because we've been talking for two hours rather than our prescribed hour and a little tiny bit. But we are getting back into the swing of things, which is good. But I'm back. I'm back at my day job on Monday. Boo, hiss. Um, and hopefully all will go swimmingly there. We're recommended reading for the next while. And um, you know, maybe we'll have a guest or two between now and Christmas. We have to work out if we're going to do anything special for Christmas, Gary. We'll, oh, we'll have to think about that, yes. Um, and I was even talking about... Or, or Boxing Day, as you people believe. Yeah. Hey, look, don't knock Boxing Day. It's a day off, mate. Uh, whatever you may think of, of other things, Australians take days off very seriously. Uh, <laughs> so Boxing Day, yes. Um, and actually, I was even thinking, did I, did I talk to you about possibly doing a competition for our um, 100th episode? We have a 100th episode coming up. We're at, what, 78, 79, something like yeah, that now? It, it all depends on how you count it, actually, Gary. This this episode that we're uh, recording now, I think technically, well not technically, is actually episode seventy six or seven or something like that. Okay. You, see, you can see, listeners, just how fixated on these things we are. I will now look it up because hey, I don't remember. This is episode seventy six. However, mm. there are four episodes I think of the of the podcast that we didn't count as actual episodes of the podcast. You know, the Boxing Day podcast, the Mega Australian podcast, they all came out through us. But they right. or or were co-published with other people, uh, but they're technically so we could, we're either about seventy-six or about eighty, depending on how you count it. But officially, right now we're seventy-six, which means probably about May we will hit episode one hundred, and we probably need to think of something special to do for ep episode one hundred because we didn't do that much for episode fifty. And episode one hundred okay. sounds like we should do something special for. Yes, we should. Jonathan, it's November. You're talking about May. Gary. Think about the year we live in. Oh, all right. If you wait until, like, May to worry about May, it'll be August. <laughs> I see, I'm not even following this conversation. <laughs> I'm, I'm certainly glad that the Aztecs are going to destroy the world next year. <laughs> I think it's time to wind it up, Gary. As always, so. lots of fun. You take care, my friend. I'll talk to you talk next week. Talk to you again week. next week. Right. Goodbye. Bye. Oh, boy. <laughs>